The thing about energy efficiency is you can always do more. Technology is always changing, process improvements, behavior, commissioning, retro commissioning, recommissioning. These are all things that are continuous activities. You're just not done forever. This is Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Dowenhauer. Today we are talking about energy efficiency, the business of not using power. And it's probably one of the fastest growing parts of the energy sector. According to the Department of Energy, based on the latest labor statistics, approximately 2 million Americans worked in the energy efficiency sector in 2015, with another quarter million jobs anticipated the following year. That's a lot of growth in an industry that drives a decrease in demand. So why is energy efficiency so popular? For one, it's a lot easier to get more from your energy by doing less with more. Second, there's a lot of waste out there. Inefficient lighting and equipment such as heating and air conditioners, old buildings that are improperly insulated, or windows that let in too much afternoon sunlight. As our guest today shows, some efficiency investments can lead to paybacks as quick as a year. I also believe that high energy prices will lead to energy efficient solutions. We saw this last decade when oil prices shot through the roof. I also saw a lot more electrical efficiency efforts during that same period when electricity prices went up due to volatile natural gas prices. I told you that I believe in enviro-capitalism, the intersection of economic and environmental interests. If energy prices are high enough, people will seek out ways to conserve and save money. Energy efficiency efforts also have been helped along with generous rebates. Many utilities offer these rebates. Now, many of you may be wondering, why would a utility want us to use less of its product? Most of you probably live in a regulated market, meaning one company generates the power, oversees the transmission lines, and bills you at the end of the month. These companies are allowed to make a profit over the expenses they incur. But because they are the only power company in that region, the sky isn't the limit. They have to essentially cap consumption, and the best way to do that is through efficiency efforts. In Texas, however, power markets are deregulated, and the revenue structure works a bit differently. Our guest today says regulated markets seem to be more interested in reducing electric consumption, while deregulated markets are more concerned with curbing demand. For demand, that means finding ways to reduce the amount of energy consumers are using at one time. For instance, the hottest part of the day. In other words, they want to reduce the peak consumption and level out consumption throughout the day. Today, my guests and I will also discuss a more challenging topic, diversity in the energy industry. In the early days, I had to make a concerted effort on this podcast not to interview all white men named John. As you can see, my interviews have become more diverse. As a fellow white Anglo-Protestant, I sometimes feel diversity usually means everyone who isn't me. But I think, and I believe my guest believes, that diversity transcends the physical. It's your background. It's the school you went to. It's your family's last name. There are a lot of ways to cut the pie. I 
also argue that political diversity is at play in a lot of cases. What does this have to do with energy efficiency, you may ask? Well, there are still a lot of places efficiency gains need to be met, and that requires creative thinking. If we're all from the same neighborhood, eat the same food, go to the same church, there's a lot of opportunities we may miss. As for the perfect blend of diversity in your workplace, let's just say those opinions are, well, diverse. Our guest today is Sadie Bronk, CEO and co-founder of Energy Bees, an energy efficiency consulting firm in Austin. Sadie and I go back a few years. We have a few mutual friends from my Austin days, and I reached out to her in February before I launched this podcast to see if I could interview her employer at the time, the energy efficiency firm Clear Result. They blew me off. It happens. But then Sadie reached out to me a few months later to let me know that she had opened shop with her business partner, Jill Myers Black. Together, Energy Bees is a diversity double threat, so to speak. They are female and LGBTQ owned. They started in March and Sadie went full time this summer. Sadie and I took this interview into an honest and open place, especially when we started talking about diversity. If you're easily offended, you've been warned. But hopefully you'll find that we reach some universal truths that we all can agree on. I hope you join my conversation with Sadie Bronk. We are here with Sadie Brock, president and co-founder of Energy Bees over in Austin. And Sadie, you spent a majority of your career at Clear Result in Austin. They're well known for being a big energy efficiency player around the country. Now you've moved on. Why did you head out on your own? Well, there's a bunch of reasons. I've been in the industry for a while, worked at a utility, and then went to the consulting side to see if I could have the chops to make it in the competitive world of energy efficiency, not just a monopoly. And started there when it was really small and uh, helped build that company to what it is now. When I arrived, it was about 100 people and now it's nearing 3,000. And with growing companies comes some growing pains and a big corporate culture. As my time went on there, I realized, you know, I really like that startup environment and it comes with its own stresses and uniqueness, but I think I could thrive in that and do it on my own. I've always had a desire to be a business owner. Both my parents are entrepreneurs. They actually started a little bit later in life and they said, do it now, do it now. I, I turned 37 on October 1st. I probably shouldn't broadcast that, but I just did. And uh, so well, I'm, only, figured, I'm 38, so hey. <laughs> there you go. And so I thought, you know, if now's the time, I'm going to do it and had a kid he's almost two he'll be two in October and we just launched in June 1st of this year and that also changed my whole perspective on life and what I want to teach my son and I'm taking a very calculated risk but I think it is important to take risks and follow your dreams in life. What are some of the biggest pushes you've seen in energy efficiency? You know it looks like we've been doing this for a while now really encouraging energy efficiency there's been a lot of rebates out there for a long time but for what's still out there, what are you really seeing these days? Still what's dominating the utility programs is lighting. We all thought lighting was going to go away and then LEDs, the prices started dropping. And now I think it's going to start moving towards lighting controls, sensor technology, 
From a widget perspective, I still think lighting is dominant. I, on the other hand, although it's not huge in the utility world yet, I really like the idea of changing behavior and how people are using and operating commercial facilities. We often forget that there is this human factor in our buildings and all technology and building controls and the best lighting don't always have an impact like humans can have. Humans can override all of that stuff. And until we start focusing on human interactions with buildings, I think we're missing a big chunk of the energy efficiency that's out there and will continue to be out there. That's something that Energy Bees is actually focused on. And how do you do that? How do you change behaviors? <laughs> that's a great question. The age-old question. So it all starts with data. You cannot manage what you can't measure. You do need to have a good foundation for benchmarking your energy use in a facility, along with getting closer to real-time data and energy use in commercial facilities. Our focus is mostly on the commercial side. More utilities are getting those smart meters out there. I still don't think it's as available as it should be to consumers, but I think it will get there. We're much further along than we were even five years ago. And then you have a big campaign on conservation and pairing behavior science with data to get people to take action. And if you're interested, I could definitely set up a demo for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be happy to. It always sounds so expensive, right? All mm -hmm. this front loading of all the equipment and software and everything. And what are some of the typical paybacks that you see when people engage in these kinds of investments? It depends on lighting. You know, it's anywhere from three to five years, one to five years, somewhere in there. HVAC obviously has a higher payback, but you're usually replacing those systems when you think that they're going to fail or when you're starting a new building, it does make sense to go with a more efficient unit. On the behavior side, what we're seeing with the programs that we're starting to put in place at our customers' facilities, all the models that we have, all of the actual data-driven results we've seen are coming in at less than a year to two years. It just depends on how advanced they already are in their energy management program. If they haven't done anything, it could be as low as six months. But if they're already pretty advanced and just need a couple tweaks here and there, you're still under a year payback, even with the energy monitoring system starting new. In your whole career, you've dealt with a lot of business owners. You probably started out pretty skeptical going, okay, yeah, how much is this going to cost? Is really going to save me money? Mm -hmm. Have there been instances where these guys turned around when they saw the real savings? What's that been like? I think anyone's skeptical, as they should be when they're working with a new contractor coming into their facilities. I think they need to do their due diligence. They need to understand how you're calculating energy efficiency savings and what the methodology is, and also check references and make sure that any company that you're going to work with is going to have a proven track record. Because we have a good track record and have been doing this a really long time, I think our customers feel confident going in with us. But I also think that they're shocked at just how much energy savings is out there, especially on the behavior side. We work with a lot of folks that know we're doing everything. We've got data. We've benchmarked our facilities. We've changed out all our lighting. Our HVAC is as good as it's getting and we're continuing to replace as needed with more efficient equipment. We've got a robust program in place and we get in there and we start engaging the building occupants, for instance, at a school district and integrating some of those behavior science tactics like competition, getting the data in front of people in a way that they can quickly understand it and then use it to drive their behavior. That is surprising when you go into a school district that's been running an energy management program for years, and then on top of that, they save another 8% the first year. That's huge without doing any capital investments. We've seen those kind of results, and I think that they're always shocked. 
For a school district, what is 8%? Well, a school district of about 75 buildings could have a budget upwards of $11 million annually. So 8% of that is a big number. Almost a million dollars. Okay. Almost a million dollars. That's yeah. right. Yep. It would surprise me if larger companies at this point had still not made efficiency investments. Do they still exist out there? Oh, they still absolutely. make those guys out there? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. The thing about energy efficiency is you can always do more. Technology is always changing. Process improvements, behavior, commissioning, retro commissioning, recommissioning. These are all things that are continuous activities and they have a shelf life. So when that shelf life is up, you got to revisit it. You're just not done forever. And are there any groups of commercial businesses out there that you find really haven't embraced energy efficiency like they should? Have you noticed like there's some do it better, some are not quite as engaged at this point? You have the gamut, right? You have really sophisticated customers like data center operations or hospital operations. There's so much potential in those facilities. Their facility operators and managers and plant managers, they are doing a fabulous job at keeping those facilities up and running. But oftentimes, if you're engaged with the same facility and you've been doing the same thing the same way for 10, 15 years, there's new ways of doing things. There's new ideas. There's new approaches and equipment that can help you out. So I think data centers have a really good opportunity. I've done a lot of work in some data center facilities and that area is changing drastically. It's just such a big energy consumer that there's a lot of money going into research and development and new technologies to save energy in those spaces. What kind of companies are you seeing not really embracing energy efficiency mm -hmm. where they could make big gains? I always target the public sector because I think that their budgets are tight. They have a lot of competing priorities. Energy is not their most prominent priority in most cases, and their staff don't have a lot of the resources to save energy. So city organizations, county organizations, school districts, I think there's so much potential in those spaces to do some low cost, no cost energy efficiency savings. The other industry I think that's up and coming that could use a lot of help, and uh, this is a touchy one, but it's happening. And in certain states, it's legal, is marijuana grow operations and horticulture. Huge energy users. And we're really starting to see this emerge as a place to save energy and educate the facility operators of those facilities to use energy in a smart way. There's new operations that are popping up. We want to make sure that they're built efficiently. I read a book which is about the business of that. Mm -hmm. And my understanding is, is that the lights and the air conditioning required mm -hmm. to keep humidity levels a certain way. And uh, CO2 levels. Right. Yeah. Because you're basically farming indoors in those cases. It's a very complicated process and it's a unique type of facility. And a lot of the people that have the knowledge to do that don't also have the knowledge in the energy efficiency space. In order to be competitive in that space, I think you're going to need to become energy efficient and become experts in energy efficiency and how to operate those facilities because it's going to start becoming more cost competitive too. Right. So. And, and I think the other things I've found interesting about that book was, is the guys, the quote unquote experienced folks with the plants had been operating like drug dealers yeah. <laughs> for years and yeah, years. Absolutely. And to run a legitimate mm -hmm. operation like that was a completely new set of skills. Mm -hmm. It is quite fascinating what's happening in that space. You're absolutely right. They're very efficient in how 
how much product they produce off of each plant. <laughs> but when it comes to the energy used to do it, not a big clue there. So just need a little bit more education on that end of things. Right. I can understand it where there's a company that's been around for 60, 70 years, and they're just now getting around to energy efficiency. They grow a nominal rate every year. It's been steady. They're fine with it. I get it why they might not be open to embracing it. But do you find that there's a lot of newer companies that start out that maybe aren't taking as big of an advantage of being energy efficient as they could, and there's ways hmm. that you could help them? You know, I'm thinking of like the Amazon building all these new distribution centers and things right. like or that. Right, these places that start out and have these large warehouses yeah. that they've taken mm -hmm. over from somebody else. So anytime you take over an older facility, there's going to be opportunities. I think the Amazons of the world, they get it. The problem is, is you have so many competing priorities and you have a certain tight budget. And if something goes over, something else gets cut. And often what gets cut is the energy efficiency, right? Because the initial upfront cost is more, but the long-term goals are worth that upfront cost. If a new plant was built today, and let's say it's a distribution center of some sort, I guarantee you we could get in there and find some energy savings to be had. To get those facilities online and running in the way that the equipment was meant to be installed takes time, oftentimes one to two years to dial it in so that it's operating at its optimal efficiency. So I think they're installing the right equipment, but they might not be using it properly. So that's where that commissioning component comes in. And I think that that's the part that's missed with a lot of these new companies coming out. It's been around for a long time, but you have a bunch of school districts, city facilities, large campus, corporate campuses, that may have server farms and closets and in weird facilities that they weren't necessarily meant to be in. And yet they're cooling them like a meat locker. What has really changed over the last couple of years? I would assume that most of those data centers at some point will be going to something a little bit more solid state without a disk drive and the need for a fan. And that's going to really help with a mm -hmm. lot of that stuff. What are they really moving toward there? They're moving towards some weird stuff, like where the servers or the chips are completely submerged in some sort of liquid that cools the actual equipment so you're not cooling the air around it. It's crazy the things that they're doing in that space because it is so energy intensive and it's worth the research, right, to invest the research into it. Server consolidation and virtualization, the cloud, that's been a big thing where you're reducing the number of servers it takes to process all this data. The way that you're cooling the space and the temperature that the servers actually need to be kept at doesn't need to be freezing cold anymore. It can be a little bit higher. And if you funnel the hot air out in a certain way, you can use that hot air in another place. You target commercial customers. Tell us why commercial is really the Goldilocks area for you guys to operate. It's just my personal preference. I like the outreach and my background is in utility account management for key accounts. So the large commercial and industrial customers. And I just really enjoy working with those folks and seeing all the different facility types out there. They all have their unique uses, but they all require energy. And how do you manage it at each of those different types? Why do you prefer that to industrial? Industrial is, I'm not an engineer. I think if I was an engineer, I'd really like the industrial because you're getting into the industrial process. I don't mind walking industrial facilities, but oftentimes I don't have that engineering mind to quickly be able to understand the process and then get in there and tweak it. I have engineers that can do that, but it's not necessarily my sweet spot. 
So I'm in North Carolina, you're in Texas. Utilities in the regulated markets have certain mandates when it comes to energy efficiency. And that makes it real easy because it's just really one power company is in charge of everything. But it's different when it comes to deregulated markets, such as Texas, where you're paying your power bill to one guy, someone else is making the electricity, someone else who's regulated is controlling all the transmission. Explain to those out there, whose responsibility is it to make efficiency gains? In deregulated markets, the mandate is on the T&D company, transmission and distribution company, to offer incentive programs. But let me say this. I think that energy efficiency is the responsibility of every single individual out there that uses energy, turns on a light switch in a day. Regardless of a mandate or not, I think energy efficiency will always be relevant. I do have to say that coming from a regulated market in the Pacific Northwest and moving to Texas, I thought this place was crazy (laughs) and really complicated. It's an interesting thing. You get often asked a lot. Why would a company ask you to use less of its product, right? (laughs) So weird. That takes an educational component. It costs less to not use a kilowatt hour than to generate it. That's the reason they would do it. It's very interesting how different Texas is from other markets out there, for sure. Other markets are more focused on reducing kilowatt hour usage, whereas Texas is really focused on reducing demand. So it changes the whole perspective of how you might run a utility energy efficiency program or the measures in which you would incentivize or recommend in Texas versus, say, Washington State. Explain the difference between usage versus demand. It sounds (laughs) a little like the same thing. If you think of your car, the mileage ticker, that's the kilowatt hours used. And then if you look at your speedometer at any given moment, that's my demand on the system. And so utility companies have to build the utility system to accommodate that demand that's needed at any given time. Although you may not be using it all the time at that level, they have to accommodate the infrastructure to accommodate that kind of load at any given time. Let's get a little bit more meta. (laughs) (laughs) When we first started talking about this, you said that one of the reasons that you went out on your own is there was a lack of vendors that were minority owned. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, And tell us a little bit about that and the need for diversity and why there's a need for that? Whenever you're working with utilities or even large corporations, a lot of them have diversity spend goals where they're looking to diversify their purchasing power with all sorts of different kinds of vendors. And I really like this because I was a director at Clear Result. That's the position in which I left at and looking to move up in my career to a VP, senior VP, and maybe someday the C-suite. But I've made it. I gave myself a promotion starting my own company. (laughs) But anyway, I didn't see a lot of people like me at the top, right? And I think a lot of other minorities feel the same way, whether you're female, LGBT, Black, Hispanic, you're not seeing a ton of that at the C-level or even director and above within a lot of corporate America. When we were going out to big RFPs for utility companies, they were mandated to work hard to achieve a certain spend with a diverse, so maybe 20% of the budget needed to go to a diverse supplier. So we would be looking, we as in Clear Result, would be looking to partner with other vendors. And in the energy efficiency space, I just didn't see a big pool of diverse companies in this particular space. As I'm starting out and we are nationally certified as a woman-owned business and LGBT-owned business, there is a community in the energy efficiency space, but they're all fairly new businesses, which is pretty cool. And it's a very close-knit group of people. And we're starting to see the utility and corporate diversity spend 
requirement increase. The last one I just went out to bid for was at about 40% spend. These mandates, are they government mandated or are they company mandated? The company mandated. Okay. And you mentioned LGBT and I just had to laugh about this because your co-founder qualified the company for LGBT. How exactly did they certify for that? (laughs) Just like the woman-owned business and LGBT business, there's an interview that occurs that you meet with the representatives from the national organization and your local chapters and they interview you and ask some very personal questions. Now, the the woman-owned business was a little bit easier, right? They're just making sure that you're not, you know, you know, a little bit easier. LGBT is a little bit harder, but we did all sit around and joke about it. And one of the requirements the gentleman said he had to have when he joined with the local chamber, (laughs) AGLCC, was that he had to have a good gaydar. So we we joked about that. But in all seriousness, it's very serious and (laughs) they're appropriate, but they do ask some pretty personal questions to get to the root of things. Have you seen challenges professionally and there not being enough diversity of any kind? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm just going to start from my own perspective. I'm sure that other minority groups have similar perspectives, but I'm a white female. My perspective is that if the C-suite is all male (laughs) and the board is made up of a majority of males, you're only getting a male masculine perspective. You're excluding the perspective of 50% of the population. Women have different perspectives than men and they approach problems and problem solving in different ways. Either way is not right or wrong. It's just a different approach. And when you exclude that perspective, you're losing out on more innovation product design, creative ideas, a different approach, a different client approach. Many times I would be in an executive level meeting and going into follow-up interviews or something like that. And I was looking at the team and it's like, everybody's a man that's going in. Who is on the other side of that desk? Is there going to be a female perspective or someone else? We need to diversify who's going to be presenting because it provides a more well-rounded approach. And so I think that's where corporate America is missing out, including the different perspectives from different minorities, groups, and gender groups. And I think it's really, really important. We got to get hip with the times, y'all. And as being a white Protestant, I can totally relate to all that. But no, seriously, I'm wondering, we always talk about differences of opinion, but think about this. Has there been times where you've been in a meeting in a boardroom and you're the only woman? Do you think that those groups could be accused of groupthink because they were all like, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah, I absolutely think so. And it's not like white men are going out of their way to harm me. I don't feel that way. What I feel is that (laughs) groups of a feather flock together, right? You tend to gravitate to where you naturally feel comfortable. And where you naturally feel comfortable is oftentimes people just like you and think like you. And so it feels uncomfortable when you're presented with a different perspective or a different way of looking at things. The other thing is that to get into that group, it's always about who you know and who you network with. And we also tend to network with people that we feel comfortable with. (laughs) I think that's why all these diversity rules and goals are being set is so that it helps companies like mine and other diverse companies break into that group, get that little leg up to start networking with those people and get them feeling more comfortable working outside of their social norm. And so, yes, there is a group think. It's very intimidating sitting in a room where you are the only one of a kind (laughs) and speaking your mind and relating and getting folks out of that group think. It's oftentimes easier just to stay quiet. And I think a lot of times that happens. I pride myself on not staying quiet, (laughs) but I think it is intimidating to speak your mind and bring that different perspective if you're the only one that is viewing the world in that way. 
And I'm curious, you know, you want everybody represented. Does it need to track with like the national population? What usually is your benchmark with that? I am sure that there are studies and research and very strong opinions about this question. And I'm a little reluctant to answer with my opinion, but I'm going to do so anyway. What I can tell you is how I feel about it. I think you need to open up the possibilities to a diverse community and open the door for that networking to happen and open the door for that experience and a different perspective to be let in. And once you have a qualified pool, a qualified diverse pool, then it's about selecting the right person for the job. Does that make sense? Oh, so absolutely. You're, no, yeah, you're I agree. Opening up the pathway. Look, yeah. and I certainly don't believe there needs to be a cap. Well, yeah. you know, your demographic is only yeah. 20% of the country. So we're only going to let 20% in. I mean, that would be horrible. And there's a lot of other barriers to what you call the C-suite. I've worked mm-hmm. in a lot of places where because I wasn't a Lambda Chi uh, at Texas, mm-hmm. there was no way that me with my little LSU degree was ever going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. I think you see this a lot in a lot of smaller companies, especially these family-owned companies. Mm-hmm. I love it that they take so much pride in being family-owned, but in any other case, that would be called nepotism. <laughs> Yeah. And I think there's one last final frontier in diversity. And that's something that we all give it lip service and we all want it to get better. But political diversity. Mm-hmm. I'm a Republican. Mm-hmm. I lived in Austin for eight years. And my joke was always that all walks of life are welcomed. But if I mention I'm a Republican, I'll be eating on my lunches alone. <laughs> and, and we have some mutual friends and everything. I think I got called the token Republican. And that's hard, I think, mm-hmm. for people to want to have that kind of diversity this diversity of ideas, because a lot of times you don't want to hear opinions that aren't your own. And tell me a little bit about that. I mean, you you most certainly wrestle with that, I'm sure. I I do. I feel most comfortable around people that think and do things like I do. (laughs) But as a business owner, um, as a mother, as a wife, as all of these things, I have got to keep an open mind and open the doors to other perspectives and other ideas because there's a whole other population out there that I'm also trying to serve. I feel like I need to hear your voice, Jay, (laughs) and alongside my voice. And I am open and I think it's so important to get out of your comfort zone, ask tough questions, have tough conversations. I mean, frankly, diversity in politics are some of the two toughest things to talk about. Um, And so we just kind of avoid it. But I feel myself talking a lot about it more recently. And as you do it, it starts to get more comfortable. So I think you need to surround yourself with people that do have different opinions than your own. And as long as it's a mutually respectful relationship and it's not abusive, I think it's really beneficial to any business, any organization, and also just in everyday life. Actually, my household is divided. My husband is Republican. I'm a Democrat. So you can imagine what that's like sometimes. Oh so, my. <laughs> yeah, it'll be very important as we raise our child to have those open communication, but with respect. The other thing, here you are, you're just starting out. You always think you're prepared, but what is the one thing that has been the biggest surprise running your own show? When you run your own show, the paycheck doesn't come in steadily. Cash flow, I think the patience factor, being patient, I am shocked and amazed and pleasantly surprised by the support that other small businesses in the energy efficiency community, conservation community, LGBT community and WBE community have provided energy bees. And it's just been tremendous, the networking doors that have been opened and the help that we all are providing each other, whether it's going after a bid through subcontracting or pulling the right team together. It's been 
really fun. And I don't think I necessarily was expecting that. But again, just being patient and having faith that the hard work, the risk will reap the reward. Well, we wish you all the luck. And I'm going to finish off with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies. <gasps> the first one is natural gas. Duh, that's the current thing. Crude oil. Old school. Nuclear. Wouldn't it be great, but too risky. Coal. More research. Wind. Need backup. Solar. Need backup. Biofuels. Competition with food source. Fuel cells. Too expensive. Hydroelectric. I'm from the Northwest. I love it. Geothermal. It's a good thought, but really expensive and risky still. Electric vehicles. Oh, I love them. I love them, but need wide adoption. And better batteries. And range anxiety. This is one that I've never done, but energy efficiency, you guys. I always forget the megawatts, but let's go ahead and <laughs> add megawatt. that one. Energy efficiency. Will always be there. And then finally, nuclear fusion. Oh, it's like the dream. And it always reminds me of that movie, The Saint with Val Kilmer, like back in the day. I'm a big sci-fi buff. And so I love the idea of nuclear fusion, but we need to advance more in our research and make it feasible for everyday life. All right, Sadie Bronk, Energy Bees, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. That was Sadie Bronk, co-founder and CEO of Energy Bees, an energy efficiency consulting firm based in Austin, Texas. Energy Bees is a member of the Women's Business Enterprise National Council and the National LGBT Chamber of Commerce. And Sadie says those groups have offered them tremendous support. According to that DOE report I cited at the beginning of the program, women make up about a quarter of all energy efficiency jobs, which is on par with other energy sectors such as generation and fuels. But you also have to remember that women make up half of the total American workforce. There's certainly a lot of room for growth, and we hope to see a lot more firms like Sadie's in the future. I've linked that report and more at energy-cast.com. Check out some cool pics from Sadie on Instagram at Host Energy. All guests are sent the raw and completed programs the week of release. So far, no complaints. Now, since I've last been on the air, I've started a new day job. So it's probably safer if I disclose that the opinions expressed on this program are mine and not my employers. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 27. Be sure to join us next time when we learn how waste in Africa is lighting up their night skies for the first time ever. You won't want to miss it. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time. Thank you.